Lord, it's in the, the midst of this realization that we join you today. We come to you crying out. We love you. We love you. We love you. We come to you in the midst of a week, as Michelle talked about, where there is so much to think about. We live our lives in response to what you did during this week so many years ago. And, and really, even just the, all the symbolism that's wrapped around this week uh, that we sort of walk into in our, our current realities is just incredible. We continue to look back and to go, he did this, he did this, he did this, and we respond to that with love. Lord, as we kind of come to the word today and we look at these different realities, we look at the culmination of one reality and the continuation of this new one. We look at the end of a sacrificial system because a perfect sacrifice was offered and, and we look at how that affects us today. And Father, it's at this point, I just step completely out of the way. I ask you to just speak through me. Everything that I have uh, to offer, I just say, let's set that aside. And will you just do your thing today, not my thing today? And Lord, just ask that you would open the hearts of the room as we come into this time where we look at the full impact of what it is that you did during this week as we look at these realities colliding. Lord, we say this in your precious name. Amen. You may be seated. We have a bunch of people that still need some seats right now, so kind of leaving that space or two for the Holy Spirit, that's just not going to work for what we've got going today. So we are max capacity. So we got some seats up in here. It looks like we've got some over here. Uh, there's a lot of space on the right. So for those of you kind of still in the back, make your way into some of those. And if you, unless you're saving seats for a family member uh, for baptism, that time has passed. We're going to move past that. So... Uh, we're going to do something a little unorthodox today. Uh, it is very uh, common for us as we preach through the scriptures to, we sort of, um, we'll preach on one thing and, and then we'll move into the next and then we'll preach on the next thing and we'll move in uh, to the one after that. For us today, what we're going to do is we are actually going to back up in the biblical text and we're going to look at the four verses that lead into or that inform what we taught on last week. So for those of you that missed last week, here's what we talked about. We talked about Hebrews 10, and we can just throw those verses up on the screen now. Hebrews 10, and last week we talked about verses 23, 24, and 25. And the take-home points were this, it just kind of to pack the sermon into just a couple of quick statements. We talked about how these verses say that we have hope, which we hold to without wavering, because the one who promised is faithful. So we talked about what we really have to offer the world is hope. That's what we bring into the world. We are the hands and the feet of Jesus. We do all sorts of ministering and all that. But really the tip of your evangelical spirit is that you have hope and that looks different than the world around you, which does not. And so we, we kind of look forward into this reality and I gave you a circular progression of we have hope and we are holding it without wavering and Christ is faithful and so we have hope. And that's the progression of hope in our lives. But you gotta ask a question and this is a question that we ask all the time in our society today. The question is this, where did that hope come from? What's the origin of hope? And these origin questions are all over society. We talk about creation and we go, well, yeah, but what was before the thing that exploded, right? The thing that caused the big, but what was the thing before the thing? And so you kind of go, if, if last week we looked forward into the one who promised is faithful or the faithfulness of Christ is what we hope into, now we've got to look backwards and say, but where did that hope come from? And we're going to talk about the origin of hope today as we break 
uh, these verses apart. So without further ado, they're right up here on the screen. I'll read them aloud for us. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. It says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, there's a lot in that. And we're going to break some of it down because the symbolic language is so amazing. But like the way this is titled right here on my notes is reality collision. This is a collision of two realities. We have the reality of a Jewish sacrificial system that has been functioning for thousands of years. Going all the way back to, I'm going to show you today, even into the Garden where we have Garden of Eden where we have foreshadowing of what will come with the sacrificial system. And that is culminating into a new reality, which is a, a final sacrifice, not a system anymore, but a final sacrifice offered at, uh, by Christ into where we now sit. So we have this finish of one reality and the walking into a new one. But in order for us to look at how Christ perfectly fulfilled everything that happened before him, we've got to understand what happened before him and how a sacrificial system functioned. And so we've got to understand words like atonement, We've got to know what was going on. The reality is, when you look at the sacrificial system going back into the nation of Israel, going back into the tabernacle, um, there was always this man was sinful, and so blood had to be spilt. That's how the system worked. I was sinful, and so therefore I brought an offering to offer to the Lord, and it covered my sin. That's what we see going on with the tabernacle. You go back even further than that, you see Abraham. He has an altar. He's offering a sacrifice to God. But what I want to do with you today is go back to a reality that we're still sort of living in. When you look at Eden, you see Adam and Eve are sitting there, and they're in the midst of this reality. This reality is kind of this uninterrupted relationship with God. And it says in the scriptures that they were naked and unashamed. There was no shame in their nakedness, which is this beautiful picture of they are uninterrupted in how they interact with God. Satan then comes along. Now, Satan's already sinful, okay? So that's already a fall. And, and what I want you to see about sin, Satan doesn't lie to them. He comes in and he says, listen, if you guys do this thing over here, you're actually going to know what God knows. You're gonna know that thing. Well, what God's already said is, hey, listen, I got a perfect plan for your life. Just be obedient and things will be great. And Satan goes, but if you come in here and you do my thing, you'll know what God knows. God knows both good and evil. Pre-sin, Adam and Eve only know good. They only know shameless, uninterrupted relationship with God. But evil already exists because Satan's already fallen. Do you guys ever wonder, wait, if there's not sin yet, how did evil get into the garden? Well, read Revelation. What you see is that Satan, the morning star, has already sat upon the mount and said, worship me. I think I'm worthy of it. God disagreed. Okay. And he stepped in and he said, you and a third of the angels that are following you, you're out. You're done. You're cast out of heaven. So Satan then comes back in, joins creation and says, hey, come to me. I got some news for you. You'll now know what God knows. That's not a lie. They're now going to know good and evil. In goes Eve, Adam right behind her, and now mankind sits there and goes, oh, wait a minute, this isn't good. They now stand and they're ashamed. 
because they've partaken in something. They, they now know evil as well as good. And so there's a relative measure. What's God say? Who told you you were naked? He goes, you didn't self-assess that. You all of a sudden are now aware of a new reality. Something has changed in you. And so sure enough, they stand there in the midst of it and God goes, okay, I gotta do, not what's, this was not best. What was best was what I had you in. Unaware. You sat completely unaware of evil. We were uninterrupted. So now I have to do something that isn't best. And now that to cover their shame, what does God have to do? Something has to die. He gives them animal skins. This is a beautiful foreshadowing of what's getting ready to happen. When sin enters the world, something has to die. And he takes these animal skins and he puts them over them and it covers their shame. You see, the sacrificial system is foreshadowed to from the second sin enters the world and man's uninterrupted, unashamed connection with God is now broken and God has to enter in and say, I'm gonna put this lesser thing in place, this sacrificial system to cover your sin so that from there we can walk it out until we've got a big upgrade at the cross. So we're gonna talk a little bit about that today. There's a reality that Christ's sacrifice ushers in an entirely new reality. So to understand this statement, confidence to enter the holy places, what does holy places mean? And for that, I have a wonderful picture up here that we're going to look at together. This is the temple mount as it would have existed in Jesus' time. Okay? Now, scale is hard. So do you see those little dots up there? Those are people. So needless to say, this is not the size of your house. This is probably the size of your neighborhood. So this is a big piece of real estate that used to sit, and I'll read a description in just a second, but here's, here's the reality. This is where that sacrificial system functioned when Jesus walked in to the whole kind of Jewish system. And it says this, it says, Herod's temple mount was the focal point of Jerusalem during the time of Jesus. Sitting atop Jerusalem's northeastern ridge, it occupied one-sixth of the city's area. Under Herod the Great, the Temple Mount's foundation was expanded to encompass approximately 1.5 million square feet. This is enormous. Its foundational walls were constructed using gigantic stones, the largest found being 45 feet long, 11 and a half feet high, and 12 feet thick. This is a four and a half story building by a one story building by a one story building, and they did not have earth movers and bobcats to move that around, all right? Imagine what they would have had to have done to move a piece of stone that big into place in order to create just a foundation to put this together. Now, unless you're in real estate, you probably don't know how big 1.5 million square feet is, okay? It's like if you took all the levels of Fashion Square and spread them out. Like, how many of you get lost there? That place is like Narnia. Like, you're like, which wardrobe do I walk through to get to, you know, I just want to go buy some ice cream. Okay, so 1.5 million square feet. Give you something you probably can relate to. It is 17 football fields in a grid. Okay, so if you took a three by five of football fields and stacked your two extra on the long end, that is the amount of mass that we're talking about that's represented right there. And something really beautiful happens in the symbolism of how this place functioned. It, the outer courts, the outer walls, anybody could walk there. You didn't have to be, even be Jewish, okay? You could kind of walk around the wall and do some of those things. But as you start moving in to the inner courts and getting closer and closer, once you get a little closer, you had to be Jewish in order to get into those places. 
Once you get closer from there, even to get into some of the holier places, you had to be a priest. And then in the center of this place, if I can get one more click, we have this, and this is the temple itself. If you look just beyond the gates where that sad little individual is standing at the top of the steps, right, kind of going, can I get in? That right there is the entrance into the holy place. Now, priests could go in there to sort of prep and prepare things. But you guys see that checkered curtain that's kind of sitting there? That is the veil or the curtain that separates the holy of holies from the holy place. That holy of holies is the place where the very presence of God resided in the midst of where his people worshiped. This is what church looked like for the Jewish people. And it all centers around only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies and only once a year. And what he had to do to prepare himself to be in the presence of God was not elaborate, would be an understatement. But as you move in, you've got this central place and this veil is going to be very important in what we're going to talk about today. But the way that this first verse opens up this whole topic is to say that we have to have confidence to go to the holy places. That we have to have an ability to see ourselves as in right standing to be close with the Lord. Now all of this kind of leads into this idea that God's presence behind that curtain, it's a barrier holding it back. We don't have a good category for this church because if you've grown up in an evangelical church, you have had pastors like me screaming at you from the beginning of time saying relationship with God. He wants it with you. He wants it with you. He wants you in his presence. That was not a Jewish reality. He was loving. He was good. But that veil held back the presence of God and the presence of God was terrifying. Anybody ever heard, anybody know of a Bible passage where they go, and the angel of the Lord appeared and the person who was there said, what's up? <laughs> no. They like fall on their face. And they're sitting back going, oh my gosh, Joshua sees one. Joshua's a pretty bad dude. And the, the angel of the Lord appears. And what, is, what, what does he hear? Take your shoes off because the ground that you stand on is holy. You go to 2 Samuel 6 and you see that David is moving the Ark of the Covenant from one place to Zion. And on the way, their cart starts to tumble a little bit. And Uzzah reaches up, touches the Ark, and it kills him. Struck dead right there because the presence of God is so powerful. That curtain is the barrier that is holding back this terrifying presence of God where one time a year, the high priest would have walked in terrified because if he hadn't done any part of the process correctly, he would be struck dead as well. And it's at that point that he offers sprinkling the blood of atonement into that most holy place. The Ark of the Covenant's not there anymore. 587 BC, that thing moves on. We don't know where it went, but now you have this holy place where God resides in the midst of his people. All of that brings us into us understanding verse 20. Verse 20 says this, by the new and living way. So what's going on? Well, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. And then this is filling and fleshing out that comment. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh. This phrase, new and living, we can't really get to and really understand unless we dig into it a little bit. Both new and living. This word new is not just new. It's not like, hey, I got a new way. The original language on this one is the word prosphatos, and that is a word that in its initial meaning has a tie to sacrifice. 
It means freshly slaughtered. Reinterpret that verse now. By a new, but import the understanding, by a freshly slaughtered and living way. Well, now those seem to contradict each other, don't they? Something that's been freshly killed and living, how do they work together? Well, you see, Christ was a unique sacrifice. In the midst of him kind of experiencing the crucifixion, he's still very much alive. He's sitting there freshly slaughtered. This is something that has newly been sacrificed. And as we're coming into that understanding of newness, we also see that it's living. This is the great paradox of what Christ did. He had to die so that we could live. Like I'm gonna quote right now, I'm gonna quote a little Pinterest thing that I saw. I get a lot of inspirational stuff on Pinterest. I, that may break some of your hearts, but <laughs> I don't know what to tell you, okay? I saw this the other day and I think it's so good. The son of God became a man so that men could become the sons of God. That's a reality. It's in the midst of that moment where Christ dies and what we'll sing about later, we will echo these words, death could not hold him. He conquers that grave. We step into now eternal life because of a freshly slaughtered Jesus. And it flows so beautifully into what he says here. Through a new and living way that he opened. He opened this eternal life through something unique, through the curtain that is through his flesh. How is his flesh a curtain? How is it, let's pull that picture back up, how is it that his flesh functions similar to that curtain which is holding back the presence of God. John MacArthur has an amazing quote here that really brings this home. He says, while Jesus was preaching and teaching and healing, that is, while he was alive, his flesh was a barrier to God's presence, just as was the veil in the tabernacle or the temple. He says, an uncrucified Savior could not have saved if Jesus had only come into the world and ministered in his flesh, he could not have been savior. No matter how many years he may have preached or how many more thousands of miracles he would have performed. You see, that's a beautiful understanding of Jesus incarnate. It's that he's sitting here and as long as he is alive, he is a barrier because he's not yet become savior. Unless he dies, he can't save. Unless he's freshly slaughtered, there's no new living way. Guys, it's in an understanding of this verse and for us to see the beauty of the Trinity fully functioning in the crucifixion that one of the most difficult verses in the Bible makes sense. There are some verses in the Bible that we sit back and just go, whew, I don't know what to do with that. Psalm 22. Man, you gotta do something with Psalm 22. Jesus is echoing on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You gotta do something with that. And we're not gonna do that right now, okay? <laughs> but we are gonna tackle one that is hard. If we truly understand the Trinity, this verse makes sense. Isaiah 53:10. in light of what we just read and understanding the crucifixion, that Christ's flesh is a curtain or a veil that is holding back the presence of God. Isaiah 53, 10 says, but the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Wait, the father was pleased to crush the son? What, what do you do with that? I thought the father loved the son. How could the father love the son? And yet he's pleased to crush him. There was so much torment, there was so much pain. We don't have a good understanding of uninterrupted Trinitarian relationship. 
We don't understand the Trinity's beautiful agreement and its ability to function without our putrid little understanding of a hierarchy. You see, we sit back so many times and in our understanding of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all God, three essence, one person, we sit back sometimes and we go, well, right, but the Father's really the one kind of calling the shots. Nope. Well, right, but now, okay, the son sits on the throne. Actually, God the Father is invisible, so the son is really the one who's kind of killing it. No. It's perfect service and agreement. All of them are in agreement. So in order for the son to come and be offered as a sacrifice, we have to understand that he was in agreement that it was best. This is not supernatural child abuse. This is us sitting back and seeing Jesus says yes. The Father says yes. In fact, we get to witness him saying yes. Father, his flesh is crying out in the Garden of Gethsemane. Can this cup pass from me? No. Your will be done. Perfect agreement. So the reality is that until Jesus' flesh is broken, the presence of God cannot be fully experienced by mankind. Jesus could only be in one place, preaching, teaching, and healing, and only those around him could experience that. But once the veil is torn and the barrier is split, the presence of God is now loose among men. And God the Father can say, I am pleased to offer this sacrifice because I know what it does. I know what it accomplishes. God's got a bigger vision than just the pain of Jesus here on earth. He says, it is my pleasure to offer this because what I see in the midst of it is that we get something back that we love so much, all of you. We get that. So it is my pleasure to crush him because once the veil has been pierced, who remembers what happens to that physical veil in the temple that is holding back the barrier of God's presence? It is the barrier. What happens when Jesus' flesh is finally pierced, when he is crucified, that veil gets torn. Do you know why? Because that room is not important anymore. It is just a room. The holy of holies is not holy anymore because the holy one has left. He is now back where he always wanted to be. He is among his people. Wow. You see, until the flesh of Christ is broken and pierced, God is still restrained. But once the saving one has become savior, now it's game on. God is back where he belongs, not constrained behind a veil, but loose among his people. And it was his pleasure to offer that sacrifice to have all of us who go, that makes no sense. It's not gonna make sense. Because God became man so that men could become the sons of God. That's the beauty of what we're doing there. Verse 21 starts to walk into something beautiful here. It says, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, who gets to walk into the Holy of Holies and offer a sacrifice every year? Only the high priest. Not just any priest, the high priest. Now, what's being alluded to here is something that we don't get to read. It's Hebrews 4. So it's already been spoken about within the book that we're in. So I'm gonna read it now. Hebrews 4 says this. This would be another good one to tuck away during times of trial. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. It's using that picture in what we're in today, six chapters later. But what does this sound like for those of you who were here last week? This sounds like our verse 23. 
that we hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. What's this say? This says that we hold firmly to faith that we possess, hold firmly. So it's alluding to the exact same thing. It's redundant. It says this, it says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Anybody ever tries to push some just garbage doctrine on you that says, no, Jesus could have been sinful. No, he couldn't have been, or he wouldn't have been the perfect lamb. And in addition to that, Hebrews 4, you just look at him and you go, yeah, but then Hebrews 4 doesn't make sense. You'll sound super smart, by the way. So when they come in and they're like, yeah, Jesus could have sinned, or Jesus could have had a wife, or Jesus could have done this, and you go, no, Hebrews 4. He could have done none of those things. Because the reality is, he was blameless. And that's an important thing. So he's been tempted in every way, and yet, this is the one who we experience mercy. So when you're sitting there in that lonely season, and you recognize that God is, you're feeling alone, and you're feeling abandoned, remember, Jesus has experienced everything you've experienced. It says that he's been tempted in every way, and yet he didn't sin. And let us then approach God's throne of grace and, uh, with grace and confidence so that we may receive grace and mercy in our times of need. How many of you have ever felt lonely? Just me? Good. Ten of you? That's great. Right back there, very confidently, big hand in the air. There's a reality, guys. He experienced everything you experienced, except he did it without failing. He did it in the midst of temptation, 40 days alone in the desert. He's there and he's good to go because he's faithful. We look both into his faithfulness and we look back to his faithfulness as the origin of our hope because with all of this, verse 22 doesn't make sense. It's because we have this great high priest, 21, that we come into 22 and it says this, so with that in place, this great high priest, let us draw near with a, a true heart of full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. You see, you've got to have a great high priest. You've got to have a great high priest in your life. And if you miss that, then there's not one to do something magnificent, which is what we're going to talk about today. This is the, the culmination of what we're going to celebrate in a minute. We talked last week. We celebrate sacred things as a church. Communion last week, baptism this week. These are sacred things that the church has done forever. But the reality is we have a new high priest. He wasn't elected. He stands having earned his position in an unquestionable way. The reality you've got to live in today, the reason it's calling you to assurance, to confidence, is you have to know that your heart has been sprinkled clean. And there's a reason for that. Because the Holy of Holies, every year, this, this priest would walk in and sprinkle the blood, terrified of what would happen, but sprinkling the blood, atoning, for the sin of Israel, making that place holy. The reality is God does not dwell in a room anymore. He dwells in the hearts of his people. You see, our reality today is this. The dwelling place of God will be made holy, whether it be a room prior to the sacrifice of Christ or the new dwelling place of God, your heart. Your great high priest, the only one who could have offered sacrifice, sprinkled your heart clean when you came to know him. And it's because of the blood of Christ, we have assurance. If you wanna sit back and answer the question, where's the origin of hope? The origin of hope is that I have a great high priest and he is my assurance. And so therefore I have hope. I walk into the world because of who he is. And now remember everything we're studying this week fuels last week's message. I have assurance 
that I am sprinkled clean, made holy by only the only one who could have declared me as such. And because of that, I have hope and, and I have hope and I don't waver in it and he is faithful and so I have hope. We walk into it with hope, but we have a blessed assurance. We have a beautiful assurance that sets us into a place in a world without hope. We are assured that we stand with the Holy One. We stand in the midst of an incredible sacrifice, one that no one else could have made because this high priest says, it was a pleasure to offer the sacrifice so that you could now stand with me. We are found where? We're found in Christ and him in us. It's an assurance that gives us hope, a blessed assurance.